Hi, welcome to the very first episode of the Air of Grievances podcast. My name is Caleb Rowe, and I am the heir of grievances, or at least I thought I was for uh, quite a while up until very recently. I thought I would take this first episode as a bit of an introduction and uh, give some background about myself and where I'm at right now and kind of where I'm going because I'm definitely not arrived. I was raised in a very fundamentalist, um, Southern Baptist, Bible Belt, Christian family with very, very strict rules and values, no room for any sort of doubt or questioning, which I now see to be at the very heart of Christianity, at the very heart of my faith. Even during my times of rebellion and, I guess, wandering, I always felt this kind of warm, guiding reassurance that I always assumed to be God um, solely because of personal baggage and previous conceptions relating to my past around using that word God in reference to the creator and sustainer of the universe. I prefer now terms like Paul Tillich's term, the ground of all being. I really relate with thinkers such as Jack Caputo and Peter Rollins and Jay Baker I'm actually headed to Minneapolis, Minnesota this weekend to hopefully link up with Revolution Church there and uh, become part of their community. Anyhow, during my college years, I went through a lot of questioning. I got into some kind of New Age religion type stuff. I explored Buddhism for a while, and I still retain a lot of the lessons that I learned from my studies of Buddhism. I find them very, very helpful and practical, at least in the American pragmatic application of just slowing down and meditating, which I now know is, (laughs) funnily enough, part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition of Christianity as well. So yeah, I've come back to Christianity partly embracing it culturally and partly just kind of accepting it as my role, as my birth, almost in a Buddhist sort of sense of this is my birth, this is my role, this is who I am now. These are the tools that I've been given to understand the universe, and if something doesn't make sense to me, then I'm not just going to take it at face value. I question all things. If I relate to any of the disciples, it's definitely Thomas. I'm a doubter, that's for sure. I am a skeptic. But I feel like that's kind of what faith is, having doubts and having questions and still standing in the trust and belief and faith in the ground of all being. So that's kind of where I've been, and I thought I'd use this episode as sort of a showcase of some of my very favorite thinkers in modern Christianity and philosophy right now. First, I have a clip from Rupert Sheldrake from a talk he gave called Rediscovering God. He considers himself an anatheist, which means that he was a Christian and then not, and now he's kind of rediscovered his faith. And I define myself by those terms as well. Um, I, I borrowed the term from him, which he says himself that he just recently learned and borrowed for his own usage. So anyhow, here's a, here's a quick clip from Rupert Sheldrake. 
the title of this evening's talk is called Rediscovering God. And there's an actual word for that, which I only discovered myself recently. It's called anatheism. Everyone knows what theism is, it's belief in God. Everyone knows what atheism is, it's disbelief in God. Anatheism is returning to God or going back to God. And this is something that many people do as part of a personal journey. It's something that I myself have done. It's also becoming a kind of social movement. Religion hasn't gone away. It's partly come back in fairly noxious fundamentalist forms, which have got a lot of people scared, and probably rightly so. But it's also coming back in intellectual life. Even atheists are now recognizing that religion's here to stay. What I want to do first is say something about my own personal path. One of the points about anatheism is that going back to God in the modern world involves doing so both in the context of atheism, learning from atheism, because it's a purifying movement that's done a lot to purify a lot of rubbish out of religions, it, uh, but also uh, any movement back to God has to take into account that there are so many different religious traditions. It's not going to be possible to have a kind of tunnel vision about any particular one. My own journey is I was raised in a Methodist family in a small town in England. I went to an Anglican boarding school, so I had a fairly conventional religious Christian upbringing. But as part of my scientific education, I quickly realized that my science teachers, most of them, were atheists, and that they regarded atheism as the normal position to have if you're a scientist. It's just part of the standard scientific worldview. Science and atheism go together. That was their view. I wanted to be a scientist, so it was part of a package deal, which I simply accepted. I was the only boy in my year at school who refused to get confirmed at the age of 14. And when I went to Cambridge as an undergraduate, I eagerly joined the Cambridge Humanist Association, the atheist organisation for undergraduates. However, after going to a few meetings, I began to find it all a bit dull. It all seemed a bit thin. And although I wanted to believe the, the universe was uh, nothing but machinery and there was no God and no consciousness and it was just blind chance that had given rise to everything, I found it a strain. It was particularly a strain when I fell in love and I had this lovely girlfriend. I was trying to come to terms with these emotions and I was going to physiology lectures where we had a series on steroid hormones. And I learned the chemical formulae of testosterone and progesterone and estrogen and so on and learned about how these affected different parts of the brain. I learned about the nerve impulses. But somehow it seemed to leave something out. And um, I, I began to feel that just wasn't enough. And then in the biochemistry department at Cambridge, I saw a big wall poster of human metabolic reactions, all the different arrows of the chemical reactions inside our bodies. And someone had written across the top in big blue letters, Know Thyself. And again, the gap between this list of chemicals and chemical reactions and the experience of being alive just seemed unbridgeably huge. I began to feel that something was wrong with mechanistic science and I began to look at more holistic uh, ideas and got more and more interested in a more holistic approach to science. But I was still an atheist at this stage and I was really trying to find a better way forward for science, a more inclusive, holistic way of understanding life. Then I got interested in transcendental meditation. The way they put this across in the Transcendental Meditation Centre in Cambridge was you don't need to believe anything because they knew that most young people were allergic to the idea of God. So no idea of God or saints or 
beliefs, it's just physiological. You do this, it lowers the lactic acid levels in the blood, it stimulates the brain in the right places to create relaxation. It was portrayed as a purely physiological way of achieving well-being and calmness. Well, that was fine by me. It worked. I, I enjoyed doing it. And I didn't need to believe in anything beyond my own brain. I was intrigued by India and by yoga and by meditation. And in 1974, I had a chance to go and work in India as the principal plant physiologist at the International Crops Research Institute in Hyderabad. When I was in India, I visited temples, ashrams, I went to discourses by gurus, and I had a, a number of adventures, some of them bizarre. I mean, there are some aspects of Hinduism are deeply profound. Other aspects are simply bizarre. I then took up Sufism. I had a Sufi teacher in Hyderabad who was the grandfather of a friend of mine. And he and I became great friends. He gave me a Sufi mantra, a wazifa, which I, for about a year, did the Sufi form of meditation. But I didn't want to become a Sufi because in, in India, to become a Sufi, you're a Muslim first and foremost. And fasting in Ramadan and that kind of thing, I thought would be going a bit too far. Fortunately, I was circumcised already. So that wasn't an issue, but um, um, I thought the arrest would be too much of a stretch. And then an original thought crossed my mind, what about the Christian tradition? And I hadn't given it a thought. Um, and I spoke to a Hindu guru and asked him about this, and he said, all paths lead to God. You come from a Christian family, so you should follow a Christian path. And I said, well, I had never thought of that, but I found it very convincing. And the more I thought about it, the more sense it made, because among my Indian friends, the big aim of doing these forms of meditation is to get free of the wheels of incarnation. The world, according to the Hindu cosmology, is getting steadily worse. We're in Kali Yuga. We're heading towards the end of an age. And everyone's trapped in cycles of rebirth. It's not a good thing to be reborn, reincarnated. It's a bad thing because you, you want to get off this hopeless world. I wanted to play that talk by Rupert Sheldrake, which again is called Rediscovering God, and it's available on YouTube. You can just search Rediscovering God, Rupert Sheldrake, and it'll pop right up. I wanted to play it because I think he does a very good job articulating uh, this idea that we have nowadays that it's either God or science, it's A or B, it's this dualistic thinking that's unhealthy left over from the age of reason, I suppose. And maybe it had its place in time and as a reaction to something else, but now we're in a new place in a new time, and it's, I think, time for us to reconsider some things. And by no means do I think that science and faith are mutually exclusive. I think that not only is there space for the two of them, but they complement and illuminate each other. One shines a light, as it were, on the other. Even if that isn't the case, it doesn't mean that a person of science, a person of reason, cannot have spiritual and mystical experiences. And I think that that was kind of the most important message that Rupert has for today's modern day and age. Uh, a lot of his personal scientific beliefs are very, very fringe, and I'm not saying that I align myself with them specifically, but um, just the way that he is willing to think outside of the box and willing to almost approach science more scientifically than it is currently being approached is, I think, admirable. He's more of a scientist than a philosopher, but I do happen to parallel a lot of his personal philosophies just because of a lot of the similarities in our own journeys. 
Next, I'd like to play a clip from a sermon given by one of my very, very favorite current faces in the modern Christian church, Barry Taylor, who is close friends with Peter Rollins and um, involved in the pyrotheology movement of Christianity. Instead of a clip from the sermon, what I did was I kind of just cut it down and uh, made it a little bit of a bite-sized version. You can find the full version on YouTube. You just search Barry Taylor on Radical Theology. Uh, So yeah, maybe I should say that he aligns himself with Radical Theology. I'm not sure if he fully aligns himself with the pyrotheology of Peter Rollins, but definitely. Definitely with the radical theology, which is kind of a broader term. But this is a bite-sized version of a very, very powerful sermon given by Barry Taylor. So here's, here's a story. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. I picked the story because it's got a trick of light and a couple of ghosts. So it seemed to fit. But it, but it also seems to me that there's a lot in this story that, that we know and that maybe we need not to know. Anymore, You know, Mark's gospel is dark, to say the least. Quick, there's not much information. And then he has a conversation with the disciples, and he, he, he asks them this question. He says, who, who do you say that I am? Or who do the people say that I am? Basically, nobody knows, but there's something going on. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, obvious, you're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, yeah, keep that to yourself, and let me tell you, what's going to happen to me? And then he talks about his demise. At which point, Peter goes, no, 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 wait a minute. And he takes Jesus to the side. Says, you can't be talking like that. This is not the way things should be. And so Jesus rebukes him and says, wait a minute, you're the devil right now. He's completely wrong. And then Jesus turns around to everybody else and says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. And, you know, we're really good at taking the bits that we like and lifting them out and not looking. But it's a story and it's a narrative arc that is rich in all of these connecting points. And the interesting thing is that we usually take those stories that come before to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. But the interesting thing is that when Peter says he's the Messiah, Jesus doesn't respond by saying, yeah, you're right. He starts to call himself the son of man. So in response to Peter's claim that he's the Messiah, Jesus starts this son of man talk. Now, in a a story like this, I think there are some interesting points that people's personal concerns are driving how we approach life. And we seem to be driven by the constellation of our particular concerns. So all of that to say that in this story, you have an interesting collision of things that are going on. Peter just gets worse and worse in Mark's gospel. You know, we talk about the ideas and concepts of discipleship, but in Mark's gospel, discipleship is really disaster until after the end, which is vague, then it begins. But anyway, so, so Peter is, is reading this scenario of Jesus and he assumes a set of things. And based on those assumptions, he misinterprets. He begins by going, well, you know, everybody thinks you're a prophet, but I think it's bigger than that. I think you're the Messiah. 
And of course, we love that Messiah talk. So we agree with Peter. But really in the story, Jesus doesn't agree. He names himself something else, something other, the human one, um, this kind of essential human being, if you like. And he refutes, and again and again and again, he sort of pushes back on this notion. And all of these stories that, that come after that, I, th- I think actually are a pushback on those uh, concerns that are driving Peter, that he projects onto Jesus, that he wants him, so he wants Jesus to be whatever he wants him to be, which is why I think Jesus sort of turns around a little bit later and says, look, you have to take up your cross and follow me. It's the concern of your life, not his cross, your cross, whatever that is. Deny yourself, the, the, the self that's defined by the drives and the desires and the concerns that you project on things to get you somewhere. So he's got these thoughts and they go up a mountain and there's this ghostly apparition. Moses and Elijah, the sort of epitome of authority in, in, in the church, the ancestors who bestow authority and, and legitimacy on everything. This must mean something. And what it seems to mean is what Peter wants it to mean. And then a cloud envelops them. And there's a voice from this cloud. And it's interesting because in Mark's gospel, God only appears twice. He speaks twice when Jesus is baptized and here on the top of this mountain. And it's the last time you hear from God in Mark's gospel. And if you like, it's the exit of God from Mark's gospel. This sky God that comes down with Moses and Elijah disappears. So Peter thinks that this is a moment where Jesus is just going to step into what's been. But it's a new time. And it's not a time of passing the baton. It's a time where an old way comes to an end, and it comes to an end on a mountain. Mountains feature heavily in most religions. These are places where you go and encounter the gods. Deserts where you go and encounter yourself on water, where there is some kind of initiation and ritual in something. And, you know, Jesus sort of goes up mountains, but he's always coming down the mountain. And so Jesus comes and he takes over this role. The cloud speaks, if you like, and he says, listen. Listen to my son. That's the word that comes. And as I said, it's the second and last time in Mark's gospel that there's any voice from God in the story. The interesting thing about Mark's gospel is how little God is involved in the story. If you read it and you look at it again, you see that it's a bleak tale, a godless tale, a tale of kind of absence of the divine and the sacred in the way you expect it to be. So the cloud speaks, they're enveloped in this cloud and it disappears And if you like, it's a sort of farewell. It's a godly exit strategy. Because he says, this is my son, listen to him. Which thus far, nobody has. And unfortunately, for the next eight chapters, nobody still will. Because the book is an invitation to consider, I think, what it is that drives us that makes us not listen, but project desire upon this thing. So the cloud speaks, and then the cloud disappears. And in the middle of all of this, of course, Jesus has undergone this trick of the light, this metamorphosis. He's taken on something, but it's symbolic. It's meant to symbolize and energize. It's like a spotlight on somebody. Here it is. This is what you need to see. And the old dies off, and the new appears And then they go down the mountain. And Jesus says, keep this to yourself. Now, we always figure that because, you know, maybe we think there's this inside knowledge. 
But I think it's more than that. I think it's about the fact that continually through Mark's gospel, Jesus sheds these notions that we place on him about who he is and what he's up to. And his take on things is not an encounter on a mountain, but you go live down on the earth. He's not the Messiah. He's the human one. He hasn't come to take us up a mountain. He's come to live down the mountain with us. So when you think about these stories and you think about the people in these tales and you realize that we have these ideas that we hope and think will get us somewhere, but they don't. And the gospel becomes this place where we are invited to face the dichotomy or the challenge between what we want and what's really going on or what we want and maybe what we need. I don't know. But in societies on the move, static tales are not very helpful. In societies of uncertainty, declarations of certainty are not very helpful. So this is why for me, Mark's gospel is my favorite one because even the ending, you know, they had to tack a bit on after a couple of centuries because it just didn't end well. So you've got the resurrection, but you don't have the resurrection. What you've got is an empty tomb with no explanation. You've got a bloke in it wearing a white robe that's a hint at what happened on the mountain. It's white robe that's shining, same word that's here in the transfiguration. And the women who come, they're looking and they're not told. There's no grand ending. There's just a, yeah. And where do they have to go? Back to Galilee, back to the place of beginnings to learn to live the story over again. So part, I think, of the conversation here is hearing the story again. The whole notion of truth, particularly within evangelicalism, is this huge, almost stumbling block. Because apparently for most people, the only answer to certainty is relativism and nobody wants to slide into that. But as Picasso said, unless a work of art has at least 10 meanings, it is no work of art at all. And when we come to a tale like this, we come armed with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge that blinds us to the light. So, uh, I don't know. Guess what I'm saying is, there is no God and we are his disciples. So that was Barry Taylor on radical theology, and I think the most important thing to take away from that, at least for me, is approaching the Bible from a different perspective than that which many of us are used to. Being willing to look at it as a whole story, rather than just pulling out bits and pieces that we want to cram into places that they may not fit in our everyday lives. It's almost a desperate thing, it seems like, when we try to do that. But to look at the Bible as a whole story and to not be afraid to consider that it is a story. And, of course, this has been said many, many times, and I know I've said it many, many times myself, but it's so important to consider the time and place that the Bible was written in, the context it was written in, um, the worldview of the people writing it, and where they were coming from. Any piece of art taken out of context loses its meaning. You have to know what preceded it and in what context the artist was inspired. His or her surroundings, his or her worldview, the common worldview held by those surrounding that person. We have to realize that art is always a reaction. 
and that the Bible was a reaction to a very specific time and place. And that doesn't negate anything, that doesn't devalue anything, but it does put into context things that may not make a lot of sense when we try to just plug them into our current modern society. I think it's also very important to consider the fact that the Bible is art. It is a story, and it is myth, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it is made up or inaccurate, but that it is a handed-down message. A story does not have to be 100% verifiably true, quote-unquote. It doesn't have to be factual to a T, in order for us to take a moral away from it, in order for us to take life application. In fact, something so far removed in time and place is impossible to verify the validity and accuracy of the stories as fact. Even a story told to me that my friend tells me happened yesterday, I'm far removed from it and I have to take it as a story. I wasn't there, I didn't experience it firsthand. And so I think approaching the Bible in this same way is a much more healthy way to go about it and has the potential to offer the reader much more life application. Because I cannot prove the accuracy of a story that a friend tells me happened yesterday does not mean that I should just disregard it. Even if it's not entirely accurate, I can take it through the filter of my friend and understand where they are emotionally and where they are in their own worldview, and I can learn from it. And I think that this approach is very important, and it's, it's where I am at currently in my own approach to reading the Bible. And also keeping in mind that, as Peter Rollins has pointed out, it is very easy to make the Bible itself into an idol, to put it on a pedestal, and the Bible is not God. God is active, God is moving, God is the ground of all being. I know that John Caputo makes reference to an analogy of a waterfall. I believe he borrows it from Paul Tillich, maybe N.T. Wright, I'm not 100%, I'll have to do my research on that. Uh, Please feel free to call in and correct me on this, but I know John Caputo references the analogy of a waterfall in motion, If you just take a snapshot of that waterfall and say, here, this is the absolute essence of a waterfall, then you're missing out on all the dimensions of it and the way it changes through time and the way it changes the environment that it is surrounded by, the environment that it is set in. And you're missing out on the beauty and the glory and the majesty of this active, moving, living thing. Trying to make something static that is active is unhealthy and harmful. For you yourself, just looking back through history, any time that humanity makes the assertion, we finally have it all figured out, they're made fools of. They may have acquired a new piece of the puzzle that's essential, but the big picture itself is still out of reach. And that's not a bad thing. That's beautiful. That's exciting. That gives us something to look forward to, to work towards. To paraphrase the philosopher Jacques Derrida, Just because an absolute or an ideal is unobtainable does not mean we should not continue to pursue after it. Does not mean that we should just give up on it. We need to work towards these things. And to me, that ties into pursuing the kingdom of heaven, pursuing building heaven here on earth. Uh, Even though I cannot stop sinning in Christian terms, it doesn't mean I should just stop altogether. As Paul points out in his letters, it is important to continue to try to better ourselves and to build and make progress towards these ideals. So anyhow, I have one more video that I would like to pull some clips from to share. Uh, This is one by Jack Caputo talking about the event 
in Christianity and in his perspective on on love, on true altruistic love and how it is when you really think about it, it is absurd. Matthew 25 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick in prison and visited you? Okay, there's a text. Question is this. When is religion not a trick? How can we keep religion from becoming a trick? How can we avoid reducing it to a trick? Otherwise, it seems to me, preaching is a con game. You're selling snake oil. It's a sales pitch. The way to avoid turning religion into a trick, the way to avoid selling snake oil, is in virtue of what I call, or what Jacques Derrida calls and Paul Tillich calls, the unconditional. What I think is that the core structure of our experience is the notion of the unconditional. The unconditional, on the one hand, as an unconditional call that lays claim to us, and then on the other hand, from our point of view, the unconditional response, the willingness to hearken to the call, respond to the call, to make an unconditional expenditure, to give a gift unconditionally without the expectation of return, to welcome the stranger unconditionally without setting the terms of who's welcome and who's not, not an invitation but a visitation. Unconditional forgiveness, when we forgive without laying down the conditions for forgiveness. Or love itself, which is unconditional. Without why, as the mystic said. Now, there's a nice way to formulate the principle of the unconditional, and Tillich called it the Protestant principle. So you may be surprised to hear an Italian Catholic from Southwest Philadelphia talking about the Protestant principle. But here it is. He says that the Protestant principle has two parts. First of all, semper reformanda. Everything is reformable. Everything is to be reformed. Or, as we deconstructionists would say, whatever has been constructed is deconstructible. So the semper reformanda in Tillich has a perfect counterpart in deconstruction, which has a Jewish source in Derrida. Semper deconstruenda, if I got my Latin right. Always to be deconstructed, always deconstructible. Whatever is constructed is deconstructible. Whatever we have put up in response, whatever we have created, made, done, said, written, in response to the call of the unconditional is inadequate. It never meets the conditions of the unconditional. Whatever we do is conditioned. But what addresses us is unconditional. That means anything we've done, said, written, is deconstructible. First and foremost, religion. What we have erected in response to the call, religion, is in principle to be reformed, to be deconstructed, to be redone, to be repealable, to be subject to renewal. So it means, first of all, it means anything that exists is conditioned by space and time and doesn't therefore measure up to the unconditional, semper reformanda. It also means justus et peccator, justified but a sinner, which means 
we are not capable of producing or making or doing the unconditional. We are not authorized to place conditions on the unconditional. We are not autonomous subjects who are in control. We are displaced, decentered subjects. You can see the, so you got sort of the Protestant version, and then you got the Derridian deconstructive version of exactly the same two principles. Justus et peccator et semper reformanda. And the reason that they have so much in common is that they come from the same place. They come from the critique of idols. Marx got it completely wrong. He had it completely upside down. He said religion is the prime subject matter of what is to be critiqued. It is the first object of criticism because of its fetishes, because of its superstition, because of its nonsense, of its ghosts. It is the prime subject of criticism. Absolutely the opposite. Religion, genuine religion, and by genuine religion I mean the genuine sense of the unconditional, is the model of all possible critique. Marxist critique, rationalist critique, any kind of critique is an enactment of the critique of idols. It obeys the principle of what Tilly calls the Protestant principle and uh, Derrida, I'm calling Derrida's Jewish principle. The critique of idols is the model of all possible critique. Marx is completely wrong, completely upside down. Now, let's look at this text. Beautiful text. This absolutely marvelous uh, condensation of the kingdom of God. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And the righteous say, when? We didn't see you there. We had no knowledge of that. We have no memory of doing anything like that. Now, what's interesting about the response of the righteous is the utter invisibility of the Lord in the naked and the hungry and the imprisoned and and the stranger. That had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Why were they responding to the naked and the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned and the stranger? Because the naked were naked and the hungry were hungry and the imprisoned were imprisoned and the stranger was a stranger and the sick were sick. Period. Why why do that? Why why would you ask a question like that? It's unconditional. It is, as the mystic said, the 13th century mystic said, without why. Una varum sans pourquoi. And they were burned at the stake for saying that. Why? What happened to the church? What happened to the sacraments? What happened to the priests? What happened to the whole heavenly machinery? What happened to all the equipment and the tubes and the pipes through which grace flows? And what happened to the priests who administer it? And what happened to the system? What happened to the economy in which this belongs? Torched them because they were talking about love, pure love. And Marguerite Perret called it the big church. The big church was this core statement here. And the little church was the one with all the, the sacraments, and all the priests, and the whole system. Litter up. 
for preaching the kingdom of God. Now, great story, great text, beautiful text, except read the rest of it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels are with him, and he will, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will shep, separate the sheep from the goat, and he will reward the virtuous, and he'll punish the hell out of the, literally, out of the offenders. Son of man. What's that mean? There's a glorious, magnificent, royal king who's coming to judge the nations. Yes, huh? The son of man means this being of flesh and blood who is born, who lives, who suffers, who dies, just like the rest of us. He's just a mortal man. But by the time Matthew gets his hands on him, or whoever, the author of this text, gets his hands on him, he's become the glorious, triumphant, final dealer who rewards the good and punishes the evil and who is going to settle the hash of anybody who runs afoul of the commandment to feed the hungry and reward. So, this magnificent story of a pure gift, love without why, expenditure without return, is framed within what Derrida would call an economy. This for that. And if you don't do this, unspeakable, pathological torture, infinite pain, eternal fire, never ending without the hope of release by death. A pathologically sick idea. As sick an idea as we've ever come up with. Unrelenting unforgiving, unlimited suffering. What the Romans did to Jesus was small potatoes compared to what the authors of these texts have come up with in terms of torture. This is the ideal torture, infinite torture without the possibility of death. If you don't cooperate with our game, if you don't keep our rules, that's what lies before you. On the other hand, if you do, a kingdom that you can't imagine the rewards. The other, and I would say perfect distortion of the cortex. I looked to see if this was a core pericope, and the rest was a frame that Matthew was picking up an old, an old story and then framing it inside the economy of the... No, it's the whole story seems to have been intact. It came like that. It seems to have been of Matthew's devising. And it completely uh, undermines what I think religion is, what I think an authentic religion is, and certainly what we mean by the unconditional. And what it does is it pulls off a sort of an interesting trick. What Matthew does is take the kingdom of God and turn it into a reward. What's the kingdom of God? It is feeding the hungry, slaking the thirst visiting the imprisoned, curing the sick. That is the kingdom of God. And Matthew, or the author of Matthew, by a sleight of hand, turns it into a reward. So I often call it not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the divine economic system. 
he mistakes or by a trick of the sleight of hand slips the kingdom of God, turns it into a system of rewards and punishments. The operative key, the sort of salient device, I think, for thinking religion through is to think it through in terms of this unconditionality, the unconditionality of what we say and do, not having a price. There are certain things you don't put a price on. There are certain things that are literally priceless, that lay claim to us unconditionally. I don't even want to say unconditional value because value makes this sounds like it's a price. There are certain things that lay claim to us unconditionally, period. And that's the very essence of the religious act. I'll close with an example. Tillich says, I think Derrida thinks the same thing. Tillich says, look, when I'm talking about the unconditional, I'm not necessarily just talking about religion. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not necessarily talking about ethics and and, uh, virtue. I, I mean that the unconditional can happen anywhere, in any way, under all of the diverse circumstances of life and all of the multiple dimensions. It can take hold of the mind of a scientist exploring the mysteries of the universe, being brought up short, dumbfounded by what they've discovered. Quantum physicists will say to you, we don't even understand what we've discovered. If you ask me what I'm doing, I couldn't tell you. I can just do the math. Paradoxical experiences you can't visualize. You couldn't do a a science channel special on them because you can't visualize what the math is saying. And they're utterly intoxicated by that. Utterly claimed by that. Or a social worker, a nurse. can happen anywhere. Now, yesterday, Kathy and I were strolling around and we stopped and we were watching, looking at the side of the building that had a big display about the Titanic. And I was telling us the story of the Titanic. And it said... On April the 14th, 1912, the Titanic sunk because it was built here in Belfast. And we sort of looked at each other and I looked at my wife. I said, today is April the 14th. This is the, this is the anniversary of the Titanic. And uh, so then we started walking back to the hotel and Kat said, do you remember that wonderful scene in the uh, movie, which is apparently true, it's in, in the accounts, of the violin quartet, the string quartet, they kept playing as the ship went down. What the hell would they do that for? They should have been running like hell to get off that ship. They kept playing their music. Unconditional affirmation of what's taking place in a moment of utter unthinkable tragedy to which they add their music. An unconditional affirmation without return, without the expectation of return. They didn't know they were going to become famous. And that wasn't why they were doing it. It was an unconditional affirmation. It, on the surface, had nothing to do with religion. On a deeper level, it seems to me, it is the very act of religion. Amen. So what I get from Caputo's message there is that weak love is the strongest love. 
just as in the story of Christ taking the cross up to Mount Sinai to be executed, he could have called down angels. He could have revealed his power as God within this story. Uh, He chose not to. And that was the greater love. That was the truer love. That was the selfless love. So these are just kind of some thoughts from some thinkers displaying where I'm at right now. I I would like this podcast to be almost kind of a documentary, documenting my own personal journey as I go along in my understanding and my growing and my, my evolving faith and beliefs and trying to even figure out what it is that I believe. I love how Peter Rollins puts it that no one really even knows what they believe. As I try to figure out what it is that I really do believe right now and not being afraid to ask the questions in order to find that out and then taking the next step and saying, well, does that make sense? Do I really want to believe that? What what makes more sense? And not being afraid to entertain any idea or any new thought. I intend for this show to be primarily interview-based as I'm the only host. I know you don't want to hear me just rambling on and on. I have an interview that I'm working on editing for the next episode. And I'm sure that I'll have some phone or Skype long-distance interviews along the way as well. And uh, I'm very excited to see where this goes. You can check me out online on Facebook at facebook.com slash air, H-E-I-R, of grievances. You can also go to soundcloud.com slash air of grievances. If you'd like, you can donate to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash air of grievances. But most of all, it would mean more to me than any donation. Well, maybe not any donation, but it would mean a lot to me if you would give me a call and leave a voicemail. Uh, I promise I'll play it on the show. The number is 612-460-0364. This could even be an opportunity to set up an interview. I would love to hear your own opinions on the things that I've said. I am confident that there are plenty of people out there who will disagree with me, and I know that I myself, just a couple of years ago, would have adamantly disagreed with what I'm saying and what I have been saying. But yeah, anything at all, any message at all, I'm open to critiques, agreements, corrections. The number again, 612-460-0364. Please call and leave a message. I would love for this to be a dialogue with me and the listeners. Until next time, my name is Caleb Rowe, and you've been listening to the Air of Grievances podcast. No one can define my God, but I see grace in everything. I do know that His name is love, a love we've named absurd.
true and learn from the priests to have new truths realized. Christ learned so he'd finally teach that God is man and man is priest. That God is man and man is priest. Orchestration moves. 